Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm Nina Pantic. Hey, guys. I'm Irina Falcone. Our guest today is Nick McCarville. He is seen and heard all over the world at pretty much every major tennis tournament, including the Grand Slams, Charleston, Cincinnati, and most recently, the Labor Cup. He does a lot of video and social media reporting, as well as on-court emceeing, and he got his start as a writer. Nick McCarville joins us in New York City, which is where he lives, and we talk about everything from how he got his start in tennis reporting and how he made the switch from writing to being on camera. We also go over his schedule and how he manages traveling all over the world, as well as his favorite memories that include interviews with Roger Federer, of course. Who else? Let's jump right into that interview with Nick McCarville. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I like our makeshift Midtown studio. This yeah, is fancy podcast stuff happening. We're in New York, and we caught <laughs> Nick on his way to a flight because what else would you be doing? It, it's actually funny because when I was an intern at Tennis Magazine, actually to get an internship at Tennis Magazine, I brought a suitcase into the lobby to go apply as I was out of, I was headed out of town in New York. I was there vis- here visiting friends for Thanksgiving. And literally 12 years later, here I am back at Tennis Channel, Tennis.com, um, with a suitcase. <laughs> Things have changed, but we're still in New York City with our suitcases dragging around makeshift studios. So yeah, life is good. Life is good. Tell us a little bit about post-US Open life. What have you been up to? Um, yeah, I uh, post US Open had some time off, which was great. And then um, I went over to Geneva to Labor Cup, which was really cool. Um, I'd never been to Switzerland, which was awesome. Um, and it was pretty cool to see that whole setup with I mean, it was essentially the Roger Federer Open, <laughs> the Roger Cup. Uh, in Geneva, the fans were so into Federer in Switzerland. And I think that when they had that first iteration of Labor Cup, they wanted to have it in Switzerland very soon after it started. And so to see all of that fanfare for Federer for Labor Cup in Geneva was really cool. And I did that. I did social media hosting and some stuff with the Tennis Australia team that was there. And um, I've just been hanging out, just like catching up on a lot of work stuff that I had uh, during the summer that kind of built up. Um, okay, so Nick, I have to ask, I am like a super huge Federer fan. And, you know, people think that if you're in your home country, like, they'll probably leave you alone if you're such a big deal. But, like, can he even walk around without being bothered? Like, I've always wondered that. Yeah, I I don't have the clear answer. It's a good question. But I, so a couple times we did events within the city and there were, like, active crowds around Federer. And obviously, you know, they did an opening ceremony sort of thing um, at this government building that was really cool. And there's a huge amount of fans there. I think most of them for Roger. Um, And then a couple times we were leaving the hotel that he was staying at and there were definitely people gathered around to take pictures and stuff. But I did see Mirka at one point, like, take the kids in the minivan. I don't know where they were going, but like she was driving, which I was like a little bit surprised by. I was like, oh, Mirka's driving the kids around Switzerland, which makes sense. Um, you didn't and, 
I, we didn't follow, no, <laughs> respecting Mirka's privacy because I know what's good for me. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, that's like a half answer. But I, I think that obviously people everywhere in Switzerland know him, know who he is. But I think he can still lead somewhat of a normal life-ish. Do you get nervous interviewing him? Because you've done it a lot. My, my my most memorable standout Nick McCarvel moment is you interviewing Roger oh, no. Federer in the Twitter Blue Room in yeah. Australia after he won. You also interviewed Serena, so like of course everyone got to go through the Twitter Blue Room. But is there a bit of a different level when you're talking to him, or are you kind of you're professional, you're cool? I mean, I'm never professional or cool. I always attempt to be both, and I fail. But um, no, I mean, Raj at Laver Cup is so chill because it is you know I mean it's his events right, and so he was so easy to work with. I mean, he's always easy to work with, but especially in Geneva, like I pulled him in for a few things kind of last minute because social media is like always on the bottom of the totem pole after they do like TVs and newspapers and that kind of thing. So um, the one that still gets me a little bit is Rafa. Like I feel like sometimes Rafa does or doesn't want to do stuff. So I try to be I try to be calculated when I actually ask Rafa to do something because I feel like sometimes he's not in the mood to do things. <laughs> I agree. I get that vibe. I think you're not alone there. <laughs> I get that vibe too. I'm not, I haven't worked with them now, nowhere near as much as you have, but Roger makes things kind of feel comfortable, especially Labor Cup, which is what you said. It's like he's way more relaxed. But Rafa makes me feel anxious and he kind of makes everyone feel anxious. I yeah, think. and it's no knock on Rafa either. No. Like he, it's just kind of his personality. And he also comes into a room and he'll shake everyone's hands and say hello and be, you know, very cordial. But I think he's, they just have to do so much that I try to be a little more like on my game. Whereas, yeah, Roger maybe makes you feel relaxed. Like that's kind of his approach. Do, you, do they recognize you? Does he say like, sup, Nick? No, I don't. Yeah, I actually don't know. I, I mean, I always say, hey, Roger, how are you? But I don't like introduce myself every time. But I've kind of gotten past the point of caring if the players know my name. I used to like that used to be a thing where I was like, I want the players to know my name. And now I'm just like, meh, okay. I'm here. As long as we yeah. have a good interview and they feel comfortable and I'm asking somewhat interesting questions, then I'm pretty happy that way. Okay, so you've been to all the Grand Slams. So I, you were at Labor Cup. I mean, what kind of energy was that? Like, how different from a Grand Slam to Labor Cup? I mean, what are the major differences that you found while being there? Well, it's just a, a completely different event overall. I mean, the fan energy was really awesome. And I did Chicago last year as well when it was here, which was really cool. And the energy in that stadium, I, the, the one thing I always sort of give an example of Labor Cup, because there's still those people out there that are kind of like, what is this event? And it's still finding its footing. I mean, I, I agree with you too. Like, we've got to figure out what it is. And I think hopefully in the next few years it will. But last year in Chicago, the entire United Center getting rowdy for Diego Schwartzman, that to me was like epitomizes Labor Cup and sort of its power. But Irene, I think it's just a different event overall than a Grand Slam. I mean, you know, it's particular sessions, the matches are shorter, there's fewer matches, it's only three days. Um, but the energy is big and the team aspect, like people buy into more the team world versus Europe thing than I thought they would, which is really cool when you're in the venue and it feels like, you know, Europe definitely felt like the home team in Geneva, which is cool. I love it. I was in Chicago last year, so I know what you're talking about. There's a different, different vibe. And as someone working it, you feel a lot more comfortable, I think, because they're more comfortable and laid back. So I totally get what you're saying. But I want to ask you a little bit about your start. You know, I know you started more as the writing side than being in front of the camera. 
So let's go through the timeline of Nick McCarville's tennis reporting career. What was? <laughs> oh God! Because I know a little bit about it, but you know, it's it's good. Uh, you can't see Arena in the podcast, but she just yawned as you asked that question. Sorry, Arena, I had to call you out on that. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I just had it was a rough night of sleep. This it's funny. I know that I shouldn't even be. Tell us. Come on, tell California us. California jet lag. It's oh, like it's real. so much more annoying than Australia jet lag. Yeah. I'm like, what is going on? But <laughs> I'm so sorry. Did not. No, I mean, no, that no, timing could not joking. be worse. <laughs> um, no, it actually. I mean, I, I kind of had that little anecdote at the start, but I literally was here visiting friends in 2006 when I was in college and was like, oh, I, I really want an internship at Tennis Magazine. That was like the big thing for me. And I was flying out that Monday after Thanksgiving and rolled my suitcase into the office and went up to the front desk manager and was like, Hey, can I, can I apply for an internship? And that summer I interned at Tennis Magazine, um, which was cool. It was like kind of my first foray into tennis journalism. Um, I did a tennis blog in college and then like uh, there soon after, once I came to New York, I was still doing that a little bit, but kind of my like big break within tennis journalism was in 2009. I had been in New York for a year and the New York Times just started like a whole family of blogs. And one of those blogs was called Straight Sets, which was the tennis blog for the New York Times. So I started writing for them. Um, most of it unpaid. They paid a little bit for certain blogs that they would end up using on the website in different sections. Um, but that was kind of my first like breakthrough. And then from there, I worked on some side projects and got my first writing job with msnbc.com in 2010, the next year. Um, and then slowly started making my way into the tennis world. That's like way, way back. I remember for some reason, the first memory, our first time I think I came across your name was USA Today. Yeah. I I mean, so I I worked, so I was with MSNBC and then the Daily Beast, which is a news website. Um, and then in the summer of 2012, I got offered to do NBC Olympics coverage for their website, as well as work on the US Open app. I was like the app copywriter. So I did all of the copy for the US Open app in 2012, which is, it's so funny, like how different apps work now. Like I was specifically hired just for that. Um, but those two gigs basically spurred me to start doing the tournament work. As Irina's saying, I've done all of the Grand Slams and that got me into like writing for tournament websites, social media, helping people manage their websites overall, like digital content. And then in 2015, USA Today hired me as their tennis reporter. So I did that for two years, 2015 and 16. And we did that cool feature about Irina in Paris and her Airbnb. Do you remember that? My boyfriend, actually, he still has that, like, newspaper. And he's like, you know, we were on the front page of USA Today. And, like, you look back, you're like, actually, yeah, that was pretty cool. It was cool. Yeah. um, And I was actually going along with what you were saying. I mean, everybody has a story. I think we were actually may have been co-workers back in 2010 because I was doing tennis blogging for New York Times at the at the time as well um so you've pretty much dabbled in all aspects of journalism what would you say is is your favorite do you like the writing do you like the one-on-one interviews what would you say it's interesting you ask that just in the sense of I mean I I'm I went to journalism school for writing I'm a, a writer sort of at my base And writing always is going to help me do my job within tennis, within figure skating, within the Olympic realm, no matter who the client is, being a good writer is always going to help. But 
the more and more that I've gotten to do the on-camera stuff, Irina, it's, it's been it's been really cool. And it's sort of, for me, it's been the luck of the draw on some of it and figuring out how to parlay the digital success into trying to do some linear TV and trying to do some quote-unquote bigger stuff. But I've gotten to work on some really cool digital products. You mentioned the Twitter Blue Room, which the Australian Open did in 2017. Um, I've now done three years of the Wimbledon channel, which is their live streaming channel for over eight hours a day at Wimbledon. And then this year we did the first U.S. Open Now, which was no live tennis whatsoever. And it was all behind the scenes U.S. Open coverage, which was really cool. I was actually a little bit skeptical of the product going in. I told the USTA, I was like, uh, we'll try. <laughs> we'll see how this goes. And it ended up being a really cool uh, product. Um, and then for me, you know, like I, I co-host a figure skating podcast. I get to do podcast stuff like this quite often within tennis. Um, I still work with the ATP and do some tennis radio for them on their live broadcast and um, as a sideline reporter. So I kind of like the um, collegial mix of different media types. And I still, when I, especially when I'm home in New York here, I live in Harlem, I get to write quite a bit still. So I do a lot of writing on the Olympics for Team USA and for ESPN and a few other entities. So I, I like to keep it sort of flowing in that sense. There's another non-answer for one of your questions. It, it keeps it fresh in a sense. I guess variety is the spice of life, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, it's, it's nice that way. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hey guys, we're here with special guest Nick McCarvel. You've probably seen his face in the tennis commentating world, but he's also very involved in figure skating. Let's get back to Nick. How did you make that transition from writing to being on camera? Was there a certain moment where you realized, okay, this is what I have to be doing, being in front of the camera? And how did you adapt and get through that? Because it's hard to just start doing that if your background in journalism is writing as I, I would know no totally nina i mean i think you guys have probably felt a little bit with tennis.com and, and the tennis channel family of you guys have done some really cool stuff on camera and for me it was just kind of organically like i was like oh i, I think i i might be good at this and the first sort of big break i had was indian wells in 2014 um, Matt Van Tynan is the media center manager and I've worked with Matt for over 10 years. And I was like, Hey, like, could I host a couple of our videos with the players? And he was like, yeah, let's, let's give it a try. And that first year, like I look back at some of the stuff I did and it's so cringe. Like I'm wearing sunglasses in the interviews, which is like the biggest interview. No, no is to wear sunglasses when you're interviewing athletes. Um, but it was like, you know, great learning steps there. And then, I did some on-court hosting at the U.S. Open in 2014, which helped me sort of get comfortable in front of crowds. And then from there, it was just bit by bit growing that stuff. Have you gotten a lot of people mentoring you early on? Someone that gave you a little bit of advice? Like, how did you seek your way? Because, I mean, to me, it looks like you're pretty natural and things go pretty smooth for you most of the time. The players always seem pretty happy to see you. You're always grinning. Was there any kind of a learning curve? Yeah, totally. I mean, there is in everything we do, right? Uh, 
Andrew Krasny was big for me on the on-court stuff. Uh, I've done it in Miami, Charleston, uh, the U.S. Open, Cincinnati, a little bit in Singapore as well for the finals. So he was really big on that kind of stuff. And then uh, honestly, uh, anyone who would take five minutes to let me ask them questions or, hey, you know, what's your approach here? Or just uh, um, feeling as comfortable as possible. But I also think like we're still in that phase of social media changing all of that and my approach has been much more of the social media hosting and feeling like you're breaking down that fourth wall and so i might not be the best tennis channel desk host because i don't necessarily like i'm not trained on an auto cue and you know four different counts in my ear because the commercial break is coming like I'm much more like, hey, what's up, guys? We're live here on Facebook and we're chatting with Irina Falcone and Nina Pante. It's just that that sort of natural approach that I've always had. And yeah, it's, it's taken some fine tuning. The thing is, is you start to know too much of like sound issues and light issues and Wi-Fi connectivity. And those are the things I'm always worried about when we're doing social media stuff. But for the most part, it's just like breaking down that fourth wall and letting the viewer feel like they're there with you. It almost sounds like you just have to make sure to remind people that you're human too. Like Wi-Fi can go out, you know, sound and light, all that stuff does does happen. I mean, just now we had issues with some weird noise that was coming out of nowhere. And at the end of the day, it's like, you know, people understand it's not going to be perfect every time. So you've mentioned the Olympics a few times. How did you get into winter sports? Because I thought you were just tennis. Yeah, yeah. So I did the London Olympics here in New York um, in 2012 for the website for NBCOlympics.com. And the turnaround from summer to winter is always really short versus winter to summer. So there's only about 20 months between a summer Olympics and a winter, just the way the calendar shakes out. And so NBC was looking for someone to head up their figure skating coverage. And I had made a couple good contacts within NBC when I was doing the tennis stuff for London. And so they're like, hey, would you, you know, would you consider doing this? It's going to take a lot of sort of research on your end. But uh, I was the digital editor for figure skating leading into Sochi in 2014. And then I went as I was more of a writer in 2014 and then after that, picked up more and more figure skating work and went in 2018 to Pyeongchang as a figure skating on-air reporter. I was the digital figure skating reporter for NBC, which That is, is cool. badass. Yeah. <laughs> it was awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. What do you like about figure skating and, and how do you compare that to covering tennis? I think it's wildly aggressively different. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I, like figure skating has, you know, it's this world that in a lot of ways it's had some struggle, I think sort of continuing to try to reach mainstream. Um, Olympic sports in general have faced that quite a bit. Um, but uh, the personalities are amazing. And I feel that in tennis too. Like we just have this plethora of great stories to tell. And like we're talking about with the social media stuff, you, you just want to feel like you give athletes all the chance that you can and that they can to feel like they're connecting with the viewer. And so figure skating is not at a loss for good personalities. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of drama. I, I think the, the big thing to me is that tennis, you have a, you have a chance after chance after chance to prove yourself um, within a match and then within the calendar, whereas figure skating, sometimes they can compete as few as 
six to eight times a year. I mean, it's very, very few. And they do all of that training all day, every day for seven minutes of perfection. And anything that's not perfect is a disaster. And it's pretty crazy to look at the sport in that way and what drives people to, you know, figure out sort of how to bring out their best competitively. Um, I, I just like that dichotomy from tennis is, is that tennis, you continually get to sort of have a second chance. Even if you miss your first serve, you have a second serve. If you miss your opening triple Lutz, you're pretty screwed <laughs> in figure skating. So uh, that's sort of what I like about the cutthroatness of the sport that way too. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey listeners, this is the Tennis.com podcast with special guest Nick McCarville. He's telling us all about his amazing life on tour, including some of his best interviews, namely with Roger Federer. Keep listening. Figure skating reminds me so much of Cirque du Soleil, and I'm sure that figure skating fans and figure skaters, if they ever hear this, they're going to think I'm crazy. But I, for some reason, when I watch figure skating, I feel like a lot of people just watch it to see when they fall. Is that awful to say? Because like it's just like the dramatic moment when they're up in the air, you're like, oh my God, are they going to make it? Yeah, no, I think a lot of I think a lot of people watch figure skating for that reason. Actually, there's a lot of skaters that go into Cirque du Soleil. So there's a connection between the two. There's two Americans that just joined Cirque du Soleil the last in the last year that were international competitors. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, you're always looking for some more drama on the ice. The falls are always fascinating. But what I've become more fascinated by is just the acrobatics of the sport. And if you actually think of what they're doing, I'm hor- I'm a terrible ice skater. I can't even call myself a figure skater because I can't do figures. I can't actually, I can ice skate on blades and that's about it. I can stand up. But when you think of, I mean, what they're actually doing when they leave the ice, that to me is the, the craziest part of it. It's remarkable, yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. It's crazy. It's a crazy sport. I mean, I have no connection to it. I can ice skate forwards. You know, I can't even ice skate backwards. So I, I can relate to that. It <laughs> Same. Just, yeah, it just seems. It just seems like a bold, a bold combination: tennis and figure skating, and knowing everything about both sports. It's just. Is it nice to have a break from tennis sometimes? Well, so I was listening to your guys's interview, or your interview rather, with Mary Carrillo from a few weeks ago, and I don't know. Tennis is the one sport I feel comfortable, and not even as comfortable as Mary Carrillo, who's a legend. But I feel like I can sit down anywhere in the world and talk about tennis and feel pretty confident about the tour and the storylines and the game and the ins and outs. And I'm never, you know, I'm not an, an ex pro player, but I played competitively growing up. So I, I feel like I know the sport. Whereas figure skating, I know the stories. I know the sport somewhat, but my job is to, again, break down that fourth wall, feel like I'm highlighting the storylines, asking the tough questions, asking the right questions, asking good questions to feel like people can go along for that ride with me. Um, and then, yeah, I covered gymnastics at Rio in 2016, which was cool. So I got to learn that world a little bit. I haven't done as much gymnastics coverage since Rio. 
Um, I don't know if I'm going to Tokyo. Uh, anyone who needs a reporter for Tokyo, <laughs> let me call my agent. Which call is, us. Which is me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I'm speaking with a few people about maybe doing something in Tokyo. Um, but I love, I just love smaller sports to me bring out better personalities. And tennis, I would classify as a bigger, smaller sport just because it's global. It's not a big four. You know, it's not one of the main American sports, but you still have this great global stage and you have good zany personalities, which I think makes the sport what it is. You're your own agent. So how do you put yourselves? <laughs> yeah. It sounds like you're everywhere and, you know, a lot of opportunities and a lot of different risks you're taking and chances and saying yes to stuff. But how do you keep putting yourself in? Are you reaching out to different people and inserting yourselves in conversations as like, you know, here's my resume and if they consider you down the road, you're in. Like, how do you... Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's not quote-unquote that simple. But, I mean, essentially, it's letting people know that I'm out there and that, I, um, that I'm willing and able to do the work. And then, I, you know, I think it's oftentimes just having that first opportunity. So, you know, with Matt Ventinen at Indian Wells, he gave me that chance to be on camera. And I slowly built off of that. Um, before I was at USA Today, it was just the reps of writing more and more and then having the opportunity to do some freelance stuff for them and then be hired as their, you know, as only doing the Grand Slams, but as their chief tennis writer. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's as simple as sometimes just cold emailing or calling people or letting them know at tournaments like, hey, I don't have a gig for that or I'd love to do that at some point. And honestly, oftentimes it you end up with nothing. But there's um, there's always that chance that it can turn into something. And so I just keep knocking on those doors. Because <laughs> technically you're you're freelance, right? You yeah. get to seek and choose and pick out whatever you want to work. Yeah, yeah. No, 100% freelance. Um, so my accountant is very important to me because <laughs> she keeps everything organized for me at the end of the year. But no, it's mostly I contract with tournaments. Um, so this year worked with tennis Australia for the January swing, did figure skating in Feb, uh, March. I was, I did Indian Wells, April, I did Charleston and then went over for ATP radio in May in the lead up to the French open, did a live show for the FFT at the French open, did Wimbledon live for the all England club, and then worked specifically for the tournaments in Toronto and Cincinnati, us open now at the us open. Laver Cup for Laver Cup, and on it goes. <laughs> wow. So what you're saying is you just have to put yourself out there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah It's totally. an enviable schedule, though, because like, you kind of want to you wanna walk a fine line between having work and being busy and being motivated to create stuff, but you also want to have breaks and enjoy your life and come back to Harlem occasionally and see family. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I mean I, you know, you and I have met up before in the city, and I'm like, gosh, the travel is awesome. And oftentimes I'll post stuff on Instagram and people will be like, oh, I want your life. Like, this is so cool. You just talk about tennis. And it's like, yes, it, it's a, a very charmed life in a lot of ways, which I, I know that, Irina, you both can relate to sort of being on the road and feeling like you're part of something bigger on tour. But it's also like, you know, managing all my own finances. I, I'm an LLC. I have to reach out to people. I, I don't have an agent. It's, uh, am I writing this week? Am I doing on camera stuff? Am I traveling? Am I paying for my own airfare? There's all of those little things that are sort of like looped into uh, the challenge of the work. When people say, oh, I want your life, I'm like, yeah, okay. I mean, it's not as easy as I make it seem. Like, it sounds like, oh my gosh, you do travel to all these places, but I mean, you're probably working yeah. a lot yeah. of them. Yeah, I mean, I I spent an extra two days, well, day and a half in Geneva, 
Because otherwise, like, I got to Geneva, I had half a day to kind of settle in, and then it was six days of, like, in the arena at 9, 9.30 a.m., and we weren't out until midnight or after. I was doing social media um, preview pieces for the website, and so it was the last thing we filmed every day, so we'd finish at, like, 1 a.m. So there's that piece of it, too, of, like, you're working your butt off when you're actually at an event. The, long, the hours are insane. Like you're, you get there before the players do. You get there before most people do, and then you stay till last ball, and then have to react to things that have happened at the last minute. You can't leave after one match like a player could. No, <laughs> people. Don't, yeah, it's hard to realize how long and how little free time you have. Especially when you're, and I, I'm really lucky because I get to work with some of these incredible tournaments and brands around the world. But when you're working for the event itself you don't leave until the event is over for the night. And nine times out of 10, that equals a late night. And, you know, so for the U.S. Open, it was I was a little bit lucky because for U.S. Open now, we were done on broadcast at seven. A few nights I went up and did U.S. Open radio, which is really cool to be a part of the radio team there. But like in Charleston, we get it, we're there every day at nine. And those are late nights. I mean, they have a night session and I'm writing the daily program I'm helping with social media. I'm doing on-court hosting. So when you are there, it is a lot of times 12, 14, 16-hour days. And you just go. You just grind. Yeah. That's kind of – that's what that's what's asked of you. And, and you're just kind of – it is what it is. And we actually had uh, – Mackie McDonald was on our team for the U.S. Open um, doing reporting with me for U.S. Open Now. And he was just like – Nick, I'm so blown away. Like these days are so long. I didn't know any of this went into it. I didn't know there was a TV compound. I didn't know that there was all this stuff that went into the, the greater tennis product, which is, it's cool. And we all do it because we're passionate about it and we love the sport and we want to see the sport succeed and grow in the digital content space too. Do you have any plans or think about your career in long term like hey in five years I want to be doing this and this or is it more of a season by season case yeah I mean both uh, you know if you know anyone at tennis channel hook me up <laughs> no I'm just kidding um no I you know I, I see linear tv I see uh, classic tv as a goal down the road but I also in I really enjoy the social media stuff that I do I love digital hosting I love the interaction with people on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram where it feels like the fans are there and you feel like you can be a little more chill right you feel like you don't have to be a sort of, sort of buttoned up um, so I really love social media for that aspect. And I don't think that you can get that necessarily on TV. I think that's where I, I sort of tend to gravitate my work towards is that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, bigger, if, if I can work on bigger platforms, that's cool. Um, you know, I, I still have some writing projects that I want to do. Um, we're in our fourth season of doing a figure skating podcast that I co-host. We'll do 25 episodes this season during figure skating, which is now through March. Um, you know, and then I've, I've done more and more commentary. So I'll, I'll do world feed at the Australian open this January, which goes out to broadcasters around the world, which is, it's a really good challenge for me because commentary is a, it's not hard, but it's not easy. So it's, it's very nuanced to try to get yourself into a booth and feel like you sound what you know you're talking about and sound good and have a, a, your complimentary to your partner. Um, so those are just little challenges that I really enjoy, like being out on tour and having the opportunity to do that kind of stuff too. Irina's done commentating. Oh yeah. I'm man, I've got a long way to go, but yeah, it's been fun. I was just going to ask you, I mean, it's been like your top one favorite moment. Yeah, that's a good one. 
I mean, that Roger, interviewing Roger and Serena, Twitter Blue Room, AO 2017, we were also like in that Federation Square, which is like kind of public. And so the fans couldn't be like right there, but they could be, they could see them, which is really cool. So that was awesome because they had just won their titles that night. So it was really cool to be able to like actually feel that energy off of them. I mean, you know, being courtside at Labor Cup was awesome. Anytime you walk on center court to do anything, like we did some um, center court videos at Wimbledon this year, like, yeah, just to, to pick one moment, I, I I don't know. I, I've been lucky enough that I've gotten to do a lot of cool interviews. You got to go in Arthur Ashe Stadium and play on it too this year. I did, actually. That was really cool. Yeah, we did That's a bit of acting, we though, one could say. We did a video feature. Um, which was cool, but yeah, I got to, um, yeah, I dropped a couple serves in our thrash stadium, which was cool. Nice. Was Thanks. Well done. I saw that. You, got to, you can play. I didn't get to unfurl an American flag in celebration of winning on our thrash stadium court, as some people on this podcast have done, but. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that would be favorite oh, moment. Cringe. <laughs> okay, let's end on that note, because I know you've got a flight to catch, as is standard for Nick McCarville. Yeah, totally. Uh, off to San Francisco for some non-work, which is good. But um, but you have your Olympic luggage, <laughs> Olympic labeled luggage with him, just I so do. everyone knows. Yeah, well, it was free swag, so you got to use that. Good for that, you. Right? Thanks for having me, you guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. Have fun in San Fran. I'll try. Thanks. <laughs> From the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, this has been the Tennis.com Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay caught up. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as tennis.com slash podcasts. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our team, editor and audio designer Luke Mahoney, producers Alexa March and Sean O'Malley, and executive producers Shelby Coleman, Kyle Einhorn, and Andy Chu.